Chapter Four of Trails End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Chestnut. Trails End by George W. Ogden. Chapter Four. The Optimist Explains not more than two hours after the tragedy at the elkhorn hotel of which he was the indirect cause calvin morgan appeared at judge thayer's little office the judge had finished his preparation for the cattle thief's case and now sat ruminating it over his cob pipe he nodded encouragingly as morgan hesitated at the door come in mr morgan he invited as cordially as if introductions had passed between them already and relations had been established on a footing pleasant and profitable to both. Morgan smiled a little at this ready identification, remembering the torn page of the hotel register, which all the reading inhabitants of the town who were awake must have examined before this. He accepted the chair that Judge Thayer pushed toward him, nodding to the bone-wagon man who came sauntering past the door at that moment, the long lash of his bull-hide whip trailing in the dust behind him you've come to settle with us i hear said the judge i'm looking around with that thought sir i don't know how you'll do at the start in the optical way mr morgan i'm afraid not much i'd advise watch repairing and jewelry in addition this town is going to be made a railroad division point before long i could get you appointed watch inspector for the company now i've got a nice little storeroom i'm afraid you've got me in the wrong deck morgan interrupted unwilling to allow the judge to go on building his extravagant fancy i could no more fix a watch than i could repair a locomotive and spectacles are as far out of my line as spectres judge thayer's face reddened above his black beard at this easy and fluent denial of all he had constructed from a hazy and indefinite bit of information i beg your pardon mr morgan it was joe lynch the fellow that drives the bone wagon who got me wrong he told me you were an oculist i think that was his rendition of optimist perhaps morgan said laughing with the judge's hearty appreciation of the twist i told him in response to a curious inquiry that i was an optimist i've tried hard very hard sometimes to live up to it my profession is one that makes a heavy drain on all the cheerfulness that nature or art ever stocked a man with judge thayer it sounds like you might be a lawyer the judge speculated or maybe a doctor no i'm simply an agriculturist late professor of agronomy in the iowa state agricultural college it takes optimism believe me sir to try to get twenty bushels of wheat out of land where only twelve grew before or two ears of corn where only two-thirds of one has been the standard you're right judge thayer agreed heartily it takes more faith hope and courage to be a farmer than any other calling on earth i often consider the risks a farmer must take year by year in comparison with other lines of business staking his all very frequently on what he puts into the furrows turning his face to god when he has sown his seed in faith that rains will fall and frosts will be stayed it is heroic sometimes it is sublimely heroic 
and you are going to try your fortunes here on the soil i've had my eye on this country a good while in spite of the dismal tales of hardship and failure that have come eastward out of it i've looked to it as a place for me to put some of my theories to the test i believe alfalfa or lucerne as it is called back east will thrive here and i'm going to risk your derision and go a little farther i believe this can be made the greatest wheat country in america judge thayer brought his hand down with a smack of the palm that made his papers fly his face radiating the pleasure that words alone could not express i've been telling them that for seven years morgan he said hasn't it ever been tried out tried out they don't stay long enough to try out anything morgan they're here today and gone tomorrow, cursing Kansas as they go, slandering it, branding it as the tophet of the earth. We've never had the right kind of people here. They didn't have the courage, the faith, and the vision. If a man hasn't got the grit and ability to stick through his losses at any game in this life, Morgan, he'll never win, and he'll never be anything but a little loser. Put him down where you will i've met hundreds of them dragging their bones out of kansas the past four or five years morgan nodded from what i can gather by talking with them the trouble lies in their poverty when they come here as you say they're not staked to play this stiff game a man ought to provision himself for a campaign against this country like he would for an arctic expedition if he can't do it he had better stay away i guess there's more to that than i ever stopped to consider myself judge thayer admitted it is a hard country to break but there are men somewhere who can subdue it and reap its rewards i tried to induce the railroad company to back me in an experimental farm out here but the officials couldn't see it morgan said i'm going to tackle it now on my lonesome the best proof of a man's confidence in his own theories is to put them into practice himself anyway the cattlemen around here will laugh at you and try to discourage you morgan i'm the standing joke of this country because i still stick to my theory of wheat the farmers in iowa laughed their teeth loose when we book farmers at the college told them they could add a million bushels a year to the corn crop of the state by putting a few more grains on the ends of the cobs well they did it just the same in time i heard about that nodded the judge quite warmed up to this long-backed stranger failure is written all over the face of this country morgan continued i took a long tramp across it this morning but i believe i've got the formula that will tame it i believe you i believe you can do it judge thayer endorsed him with enthusiasm i believe you've brought the light of a new epoch into this country i believe you're carrying the key that's going to unlock these prairies and liberate the gold under the grass roots it may be nothing but a dream said morgan softly his eyes fixed on the blue distances through the open door maybe it will break me and scatter my bones on the prairie for that old scavenger of men to haul away judge thayer shook his head in denial of this possibility making note of this rugged dreamer's strong face strong arms large capable hands we're not away out west as most people seem to think he said only a little past the middle of the state 
My observation through several years here has been that it rains about as much and as often in this part of the country as it does in the eastern part of the state. Enough to make two crops in three, anyway, and that's as good as you can count on without irrigation anywhere. Morgan agreed with the nod. Judge Thayer went on. The trouble is, this prairie sheds water like the roof of a house, shoots it off so quick into the draws and creeks it never has a chance to soak in. Plow it, I tell em, and keep on plowing it, in season and out. Fix it so it can soak up the rain and hold it. Is that right? You've got the key to it yourself, Morgan told him, not a little surprised to hear this uncredited missionary preaching the very doctrine that men of Morgan's profession had found so hard to make converts to in the prairie country. But it will be two or three years at least before you can begin your experiment with wheat. Judge Thayer regretted. By that time, I'm afraid the settlers that are taking up land around here now will be broken and discouraged, gone to spread the curse against Kansas in the same old bitterness of heart. I hope to find a piece of land that somebody has abandoned or wants to sell that has been farmed a year or two, Morgan confided. If I can get hold of such a place, I'll be able to put in a piece of wheat this fall. Even a few acres will start me going. I could enlarge my fields with my experience. Judge Thayer said he believed he had the very place Morgan was looking for listed for sale. But there were so many of them listed for sale, the owners gone, their equities long since eaten up by unpaid taxes, that it took the judge a good while to find the particulars in this special case. Man by the name of Gerhardt, mile and a half west of town, that would bring him pretty near the river. Offers his quarter for three hundred dollars. He's been there about four years now. Wife died this spring. I think he's got about eighty acres broken out. Some of that land ought to be in pretty good shape for wheat by now. As the day was declining to evening, and Judge Thayer's supper hour was near, they agreed on postponing until morning the drive out to look at the dissatisfied settler's land. Morgan was leaving when the judge called him back from the door. "'I was just wondering whether you'd ever had any editorial experience,' he said. "'No, I've never been an editor,' Morgan returned, speculating alertly on what might be forthcoming. "'We, uh, our editor—our editor,' said the judge, fumbling with it as if he found the matter a difficult one to fit into the proper words— fell into an unfortunate error of judgment a short time ago with, um, somewhat melancholy, melancholy. The judge paused, as if feeling of this word to see that it fitted properly, head bent thoughtfully. Results. Unlucky piece of business for this community, coming right in the thick of the contest for the county seat. There's a fight on here, Mr. Morgan, as you may have heard between Ascalon, the present county seat, and Glenmore, a god-abandoned little fly-speck on the map seven miles south of here. I hadn't heard of it. And what happened to the editor? Oh, one of our hot-headed boys shot him, said the judge, out of patience with such trivial and hasty yielding to passion. Since then I've been getting out the paper myself. I hold a mortgage on the property. I'll be obliged to foreclose to protect myself, with the help of the printer. 
It's not much of a paper, Morgan, for I haven't got the time to devote to it with the July term of court coming on, but I have to get it out every week or lose the county printing contract. There's a hungry dog over at Glenmore looking on to snatch the bone on the least possible excuse, and he's got two of the county commissioners with him. No, I'm not an editor, Morgan repeated speculatively, as if he saw possibilities of distinction in that road. Without the press, we are a community disarmed in the midst of our enemies, said the judge. Glenmore will overwhelm us and rob us of our rights without a champion whose voice is as the voice of a thousand men. I'd never be equal to that, Morgan said, shaking his head in all seriousness. Is the editor out of it for good? Is he dead? They have a devilish peculiarity of seldom wounding a man here in Ascalon, Mr. Morgan. I've wished more than once they were not so cursed proficient. The poor fellow fell dead, sir, at the first shot, while he was reaching for his gun. I've seen something of their proficiency here, Morgan said with plain contempt. Judge Thayer looked at him sharply. You refer to that affair at the hotel this afternoon? It was a brutal and uncalled-for sacrifice of human life. It was murder in the name of the law. I think you are somewhat hasty and unjust in your criticism, Mr. Morgan, the judge mildly protested. I know the marshal to be a cool-headed man, a man who can see perils that you and I might overlook until too late for our own preservation. The fellow must have made some break for his gun that you didn't see. I hope it was that way, Morgan said, willing to give the marshal every shadow of justification possible. I've known Seth Craddock a long time. He was hunting buffalo for the railroad contractors when I first came to this country. Why, I appointed Seth to the office not more than an hour before that mix-up at the hotel. He's beginning early, Morgan said. The man that's going to clean this town up must begin early and work late, Judge Thayer declared. An officer that would allow a man to run a bluff on him wouldn't last two hours. I suppose not, Morgan admitted. As I told Seth when I swore him in, what we want in Ascalon is a marshal that will make use of his gun oftener and to better purpose than the men that have gone before him. This town must be purified, the awful of humanity that makes a stench until it offends the heavens and spreads our obscene notoriety to the ends of the earth must be swept out before we can induce sober and substantial men to bring their families into this country. It looks reasonable enough, Morgan agreed. Hell's kettle is on the fire in this town, Mr. Morgan. The devil's own stew is bubbling in it. If I can induce you to defer your farming experiment a few months, as much as I approve it, anxious as I am to see you demonstrate your theories and mine, I believe we could accomplish the regeneration of this town. With a man of Craddock's caliber on the street, and you in the headlight office speaking with the voice of a thousand men, we could reverse public opinion and draw friends to our side. Without some such support, I view the future with gloom and misgiving. Glenmore is bound to displace us as the capital of this county. Ascalon will decline to a whistling station by the side of the track. 
I'm afraid I wouldn't care to hitch up with Mr. Craddock in the regeneration of Ascalon, Morgan said. We'd pull so hard in opposite directions we'd break the harness. Judge Thayer expressed his regret while he slipped on his black alpaca coat, asking Morgan to wait until he locked his door when he would walk with him as far as the hotel corner. On the way, they met a young man who came bowling along with a great air of importance and self-assurance, a fresh cigar tilted up in his mouth to such an angle that it threatened the brim of his large white hat. Judge Thayer introduced this man as Del Hutton, county treasurer. Hutton wrung Morgan's hand with an ardent grip, as if he welcomed him into the brotherhood of the elect in Ascalon, speaking out of the corner of his mouth around his cigar. He was a thin-mouthed man of twenty-five, or perhaps a year or two older, with a shrunken weasenness about his face that made him look like a very old man, done over, and but poorly renovated. His eyes were pale, with shadows in them as of inquiry and distrust. His stature was short, his frame slight. Hutton seemed to be deeply, even passionately interested in the venture Morgan had come to make in that country. He offered his services in any exigency where they might be applied, shaking hands again with hard grip, accompanied by a wrinkling of his thin mouth about his cigar as he clamped his jaws in the fervor of his earnestness. But he appeared to be under a great pressure to go his way, his eyes controverting the sincerity of his words the while. "'He's a rather young man to be filling such a responsible position,' Morgan ventured as they resumed their way. Dell wasn't elected to the office, Judge Thayer explained. He's filling out his father's term. Did he die? Morgan inquired, marveling over the mortality among the notables of the town. He was a victim of this feud and the rivalry for the county seat, Judge Thayer explained with sadness. It was due to Hutton more than any other force that we didn't lose the county seat at the last election. He kept the cattlemen lined up, was a power among them, followed that business a long time himself. Yes, he was the first man that ever drove a herd of cattle from Texas to load for market when this railroad was put through. Some of those skulkers from Glenmore shot him down at his door two months after he took office. I thought the boy looked like he'd been trained on the range, Morgan said thoughtfully. Yes, Dell was raised in the saddle drove several trips from texas up here dell softly a little sorrowfully morgan thought was the other principal in that affair with our late editor oh i see he was exonerated clear case of self-defense proved that smith the editor was smith reached for his gun first morgan did not comment but he thought that this seemed a thing easily proved in ascalon he parted from the judge at the bank corner, which was across the way from the hotel. The shadow of the hotel fell far into the public square, and in front of the building, their chairs placed in what would have been the gutter of the street if the thoroughfare had been paved, their feet braced with probably more comfort than grace against the low sidewalk, a row of men was stationed like crows on a fence. There must have been twenty or more of them in various stages of undress, from vests down to suspenders, from bright cravats flaunting over woolen shirts and white shirts and striped shirts and speckled shirts, 
to unconfined necks laid bare to the breeze. Whether these were guests waiting supper, or merely loafers waiting anything that might happen next, Morgan had not been long enough in town to determine. He noticed the curious and, he thought, unfriendly eyes which they turned on him as he approached. And as Morgan set foot on the sidewalk porch of the hotel, Seth Craddock, the new city marshal, rose out of the third chair on the end of the row nearest him, hand lifted in commanding signal to halt. "'You've just got time to get your gripsack,' Craddock said, coming forward as he spoke, but stopping a little to one side as if to allow Morgan passage to the door. "'Time's no object to me,' Morgan returned, good-humored and undisturbed, thinking this must be one of the jokes at the expense of strangers for which Ascalon was famous. Some of the loafers were standing by their chairs in an attitude of indecision, others sat leaning forward to see and hear. Traffic both ways on the sidewalk came to a sudden halt at the spectacle of two men in a situation recognized at a glance in quick-triggered Ascalon as significant. Those who came up behind Morgan clearing the way by edging from the sidewalk into the square. "'The train'll be here in twelve minutes,' Craddock announced, watching his palm. "'On time, is she?' Morgan said indifferently, starting for the door. Again Seth Craddock lifted his hand. Those who had remained seated along the gutter perch up to this moment now got to their feet with such haste that chairs were upset. Craddock put his hand casually to his pistol as a man rests his hand on his hip. "'You're leaving on it,' he said. "'I guess you've got the wrong man,' Morgan suggested, noting everything with comprehensive eye, not a little concerned by the marshal's threatening attitude. If this were going to turn out to be a joke, Morgan wished it might begin very soon to show some of its risable features on the surface in order that he might know which way to jump to make the best figure possible. "'No, I ain't got no wrong man,' Craddock returned, making mockery of the words, uttering them jeeringly out of the corner of his mouth. He blasted Morgan with the glare of his malevolent red eyes, redder now than before his weapon had moistened the streets of Ascalon with blood. "'You're the feller that's been shootin' off your mouth about murder in the name of the law,' and you being able to take his gun away from that feller. Well, kid, I'm afraid it's going to be a little too rough for you in this town. You're leaving. You won't have time to get your gripsack now. You can write for it. Morgan felt the blood flaming into his face with a hot swell of anger. A moment he stood eye to eye with Craddock, fighting down the defiance that rose for utterance to his lips. Then he started again toward the hotel door. Craddock whipped out his pistol with arms so swift that the eye multiplied it like a spoke in a quick spinning wheel. He stood holding the weapon so, his wrist rather limber, the muzzle of the pistol pointing in the general direction of Morgan's feet. "'Maybe you can take a gun away from me, little feller?' Craddock challenged in high mockery, one long nostril of his long nose twitching, lifting his mustache on that side in a snarl. "'Don't point that gun at me, Craddock,' Morgan warned, his voice unshaken and cool, although the surge of his heart made his seasoned body vibrate to the fingertips. "'Scratch gravel for the depot,' Craddock commanded. 
lowering the muzzle of his gun as if he intended to hasten the going by a shot between the offender's feet. The men were separated by not more than two yards, and Morgan made no movement to widen the breach immediately following the marshal's command to go. On the contrary, before any that saw him standing there in apparent indecision, and least of all among them Seth Craddock, could measure his intention, Morgan stepped aside quicker than the watchers calculated any living man could move, reached out his long arm a flash quicker than he had shifted on his feet, and laid hold of the city marshal's hairy wrist, wrenching it in a twist so bone-breaking that the nerves and muscles failed their office. Nobody saw exactly how he accomplished it, but the next moment Morgan stepped back from the city marshal, that officer's revolver in his hand. "'Mr. Craddock,' he said in calm, advisory way, "'I expect to stay around this part of the country some little time, and I'll be obliged to come to Ascalon once in a while. If you think you're going to feel uncomfortable every time you see me, I guess the best thing for you to do is leave.' I'm not saying you must leave. I don't set myself up to tell a man when to come and go without I've got that right over him. I just suggest it for your comfort and peace of mind. If you stay here, you'll have to get used to seeing me around. Craddock stood for a breath, glaring at the man who had humiliated him in his new dignity, clutching his half-paralyzed wrist. He said nothing but there was the proclamation of a death feud in his eyes. "'Give him a gun, somebody!' said a fool in the crowd that pressed to the edge of the sidewalk at the marshal's back. Tom Conboy, standing in his door ten feet away, interposed quickly, waving the crowd back. "'Tut-tut! No niggers in Ireland now!' he said. "'He can have this one,' said Morgan, still in the same measured, calm voice. He offered the pistol back to its owner, who snatched it with ungracious hand, shoved it into his battered scabbard, turned to the crowd at his back with an oath. "'Scatter out of here!' he ordered, covering his degradation as he might in this tyrannical exercise of authority. Morgan looked into the curious faces of the people who blocked the sidewalk ahead of him, withdrawn a discreet distance, not yet venturing to come on. Except for the red handkerchief that he had worn about his neck, he was dressed as when he arrived in Ascalon, in Joe Lynch's wagon, coatless, the dust of the road on his shoes. In place of the bright handkerchief, he now wore a slender black necktie, the ends of it tucked into his gray woolen shirt. He felt taller, rawer, more angular than nature had built him as he stood there looking at the people who had gathered like leaves against a rock in a brook. He was ashamed of his part in the public show, sorry that anybody had been by to witness it. In his embarrassment, he pushed his hat back from his forehead, looking around him again, as if he would break through the ranks and hide himself from such confusing publicity. The crowd was beginning to disperse at Seth Craddock's urging, although those who had come to a stand on the sidewalk seemed timid about passing Morgan. They still held back as to give him room, or in uncertainty whether it was all over yet. Perhaps they expected Craddock to turn on Morgan again when he had cleared a proper space for his activities. As for Morgan, he had dismissed the city marshal from his thoughts, for something else had risen in his vision more worthy the attention of a man. 
This was the face of a girl on the edge of the crowd in front of him, a tall, strong, pliant creature who leaned a little as if she looked for her reflection in a stream. She was garbed in a brown duck riding skirt, white waist with a bright wisp of cravat blowing at her breast like the red of bittersweet against snow. Her dusty sombrero threw a shadow over her eyes, but Morgan could see that they were dark and friendly eyes, as no shadow but night could obscure. The other faces became in that moment but the incidental background for one. His heart lifted and leaped as the heart moves and yearns with tender quickening at the sound of some old melody that makes it glad. Morgan stepped back, thinking only of her, seeing only her, making a way for her only to pass. That others might follow was not in his mind. He stepped out of the way for her. She came on toward him now, one finished, one refined, among that press of crudity, one unlooked for in that place of wild lusts and dark passions unrestrained. She carried a packet of newspapers and letters under her bent arm, telling of her mission on the street. The thong of her riding quirt was about her wrist. Her soft, dark hair was low on her neck, a flush as of the pleasure that speaks in bounding blood when friend meets friend glowed in her face. Morgan removed his hat as she passed him. She looked into his face and smiled. The little crowd broke and followed, but Morgan, oblivious to the movement around him, stood on the sidewalk edge looking after her, his hat in hand. End of chapter 4 Recording by Jeff Chestnut